Well, let's go ahead and get into the word. Um, go ahead and open up to Mark, chapter 10. As you're doing that, let me say this. One of the most uh, dangerous things in American Christ- in America, in the, the church in America, is Christendom. What I mean by Christendom is the rise of Christianity as a political force, the rise of Christianity as the majority faith, the rise of Christianity as um, the thing you do. And I know maybe at first it goes, okay, Los, where are you going with this? Maybe you should head back to Rio Rancho. <laughs> well, since Constantine, Constantine was a Roman emperor around the 4th, 5th century, um, since Constantine made Christianity a state faith, since that time, Christianity has taken on a different faith than when it first started. And now the, now the history and the thoughts of why Constantine became a Christian vary. Because just 50, 100 years earlier, Christianity was trying to, the Caesars were trying to exterminate the Christians. As you see, from the time of Acts, from the time of Pentecost, when this 120 disciples began preaching the gospel, planting churches, to over three centuries later, Christianity went from the 120 to around 25 to 30 million. And so history says that Constantine started looking around, noticing the crosses, and started thinking to himself, okay, this movement can't be stopped. There's something about this that can't be stopped. And so the theories go that very possible that he saw his sin, he heard the gospel, was transformed by the Holy Spirit, repented, and followed Jesus. But if you read the majority of historical accounts, many will say what happened was Constantine saw this rising force. He started thinking to himself two things. One is, I am now in the minority. The the Christians are taking over. And in Rome at that time, Caesar weren't exactly voted in and out. It wasn't like hotly contested, you know, debates and CNN, Fox News, MSNBC going at each other. I'm an ESPN news guy myself. But what happened is you lived, you died, someone took over. How you died depended on how you ruled. You're a good ruler? Old man, glory years. There weren't very many of them. You're a bad ruler. Hey, have some wine. Hey, look that way. Oh, don't, don't mind me with this knife. So Constantine starts thinking, huh. Well, I'm outnumbered. For my own sake, I better, better join this crew. And there was other thought that he saw this and said, if we put crosses on our shield, this this movement can't be stopped. We've seen, we've seen we try to kill them. We've tried to do everything in this history of this little sect that started in Jerusalem. Let's put crosses on our shields and let's see if we'll be able to expand our territories because whatever magical, mystical powers this group has seems to be working. So Constantine becomes a Christian. As he says he is, I'm not God, so we don't know for sure what the whole thing was with him inside. But since that time... As Christianity has become a dominant force, a dominant faith, 
what's happened here in America is really since our history. In so many ways, confessing Jesus is as simple as a prayer or a signature. And that is dangerous. In many ways, it's become simply about getting out of hell or finding healing. When I say healing, I don't mean healing from our wretchedness of our sin. I mean healing from, I'm really depressed and I need something to make me feel better. Well, we're probably not going to talk about your own wretchedness before God, but hey, God loves me, so I feel better. Or a new self-improvement program. Well, I need to clean up my life, so I'll become a Christian. Not much consequences. We even do that, we even, we even can at times do this with our children and how we evangelize them. Well, Johnny, do you want to burn and be punished and face pain for eternity? Or do you want to be with mommy and daddy in paradise and smile all the time? I have a three year old named Cody. He's crazy. I don't know how things he says sometimes. I just kind of go, oh, great, good, all right. But here's the thing. If I went up to Cody and said, Cody, do you want a spanking or do you want a candy bar? I guarantee you, he's not going to be like, spanking, hmm. Candy bar. Spanking. No, he's like, boom, he's like halfway done with the candy bar before I even end up saying bar. And we've turned Christianity into this, I signed the card back in 85. I just don't want to go to hell. I want to make sure I'm covered. I want to be a better person. And here's the problem with that. This. Especially the gospel accounts. In particular, the story we're going to look at today. Where you will face a very different view of what it means to answer the call to follow Jesus. Let me give you a little context about Mark. Mark, is, Mark can be looked at more like Peter's gospel. Mark was probably an assistant to Peter. Or he was a disciple of Peter. And he took Peter's sermons. Or he probably may have talked to Peter. And wrote down Peter's accounts of what happened. Mark is writing to a predominantly Roman audience, Gentiles. So unlike Matthew, for instance, if you read Matthew, you're going to hear a lot like the prophecies were fulfilled, thus this prophecy was fulfilled, Isaiah, all these things. Romans have no idea. They don't have that background. They don't care. They want to know who is this man, what has he done? So in Mark, you're going to hear very very fast-paced, event to event to event to event. It's probably the earliest gospel account written. It's really divided into two halves. The first half of the account, people are looking at, who is this man? Mark is talking about, who is this man? You hear, who is this? Who speaks with such authority? Who is this guy that says such things, that does such things, that lives such a way, that is causing a stir in the system of how we do things? Who is this man? And that culminates when when Jesus turns it around and asks Peter, who do you say I am? First half is, who is this man? Who is this man? Who is this? Jesus says, who do you say I am? This is your Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. 
And then from then on out, the second half of Mark is, what does it mean if he's the Christ? What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to trust him as Lord, Savior, friend? In the second, first half of Mark, you see Jesus going all over the map in the area. And put it in New Mexico terms, he's going from Farmington down to Demi, Las Cruces. Gets out of there quickly. Goes to Socorro. Albuquerque, Belen, all over. Second half of Mark, after Peter says, you are the Christ. There's no more bouncing around. The second half of Mark is Jesus going straight to Jerusalem. Telling the disciples three times, I'm going to die. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to Jerusalem. So that gives you a little bit of context of where we're at in Mark. And we're actually in the second half, what it means to follow him. So look at Mark chapter 10, starting verse 17. I'm going to go ahead and read. As he, Jesus, was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Jesus, how difficult, I mean, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. The last, first. The first thing we'll look at is the approach. We don't know much about this man. It's called a, the subtitles here in, in Mark, and my Bible says the rich young man, and Luke it says the rich young ruler. We know he had many possessions. So he was rich, he was young. It's a good place to be in that time, in that culture. To be young and rich kind of puts you on top of the ladder, the nobility in some ways. And he comes to Jesus as a man of nobility, as a man who has gained much. When you see later how he responds, he's a moral man. Seems religious. He comes to speak to this Jesus he's probably heard of, who's gained a following, who's caused a commotion, great crowds come around this Jesus. He comes to talk to him, he comes to seek him. And his approach is interesting. Gets on his knees. But this Getting on his knees is not necessarily about 
a desperation yearning to want to know the answer. It may not even be a, a sign of severe, uh, of sincere reverence. What it may be is just a common greeting that he expects to be returned back to him. A greeting of a man of nobility to a good, fine scholar. And he'll expect something in return. Almost like if you went up to someone and said, hello, good sir. And he returned his thing. Hello, fine gentleman. I hope someone does that with me someday. Because I think that would be awesome. Usually I just get, what's up? So... We know this because of Jesus' response. Jesus responds to people who are desperate, who are in want of mercy, who are at the end of themselves, a lot differently than someone who is coming just to flatter this good teacher. Someone who has already earned and feels that he is in a place, a position of power and status and expects something in return, expects to be treated in a certain way with a certain respect and dignity that he has earned through his possessions and through his morality. And Jesus responds quite different. So while this man's on his knee, kneeling down, almost here like Jesus, like, get up. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He doesn't accept this man's flattery, and he doesn't return it. Instead, he questions this man's theology. Now, Jesus is God. He's God and man. But this man isn't approaching Jesus as God and man. He's trying to figure all this out. This man sees a, a rabbi that is important, that is popular, has a crowd. And so he flatters him with the word good. He uses the term good loosely. And that's what Jesus is rebuking him of. You're using a word you don't understand. No one's good. It's kind of like we do today. There's a word that's been used and overused. I even, I even used a sermon series that Redemption, our first sermon series was named after this. Because I thought it was an overused word and we needed to redeem it. The kids use it these days on the Facebook, on the Twitter. I use that stuff, so I just like I like to sound older than I am. Um, epic, epic. Raise your hand if you're guilty of using the word epic. Not, I'm not going to judge you much. <laughs> no, but we use the word epic. We go, like, I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and it was epic. Okay. Three Facebook statuses later. My chicken nuggets were epic. <laughs> so you ate the nuggets like you were at the Strand of the Grand Canyon? That movie was epic. This man was using good. Like so many of us use great, epic, awesome. So much so that it loses its value. We don't even know what we're saying. Jesus gives this man a list. He knows, what the, he knows that this is what this man is looking for. He knows what this man is wanting. He knows what this man is expecting, so he humors him a little bit. He gives him a list from the second part of the Ten Commandments. 
He says, do not defraud. I know you might be looking at that in the second part of the Ten Commandments. It's more likely a hybrid of nine and ten. Honor mother's mother and father earlier commands, but most of them come from the second half. And this man answers in the affirmative. Look at verse 20 there. He says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. You can almost hear like giddiness in his voice. Done it. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. I was ready. Boom. He's looking around. What's up? Like most of his life, he's probably thinking this is something, eternal life. He said, what can I do? So it's something he can earn. And so far, he's met all the criteria in his mind. And you know what? Jesus has him right where he wants him. Because Jesus is about to now dig deeper. And that's the second point. Is Jesus is going to be digging deeper now. We can begin to see the intent of Jesus' heart and Jesus' heart and his care for this young man. So this man is giddy. He's like, I'm done. I'm, I've done it. I'm there. And it says, Jesus looking at him loved him. That's important. That's important for what follows. He was looking at him. He didn't just go, oh. or go, I got you, sucker. No, he loved him. He looked at him with compassion and care and loved him. So what follows comes from a heart of love for this man. And in fact, what's so crucial about that word, he loved him. In the gospel accounts, Jesus is only, well, there's only three times where Jesus is said to have loved someone individually. He is one of those three. He is one of those three. So out of love, Jesus tells this man he lacks one thing. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus tells this man who has many possessions, this rich young guy, take what you have, all of it that you've earned over your whole life, Sell it all. And trust that what you get in return in heaven, trust that what you get in return for following me is far greater than what you are going to sell away that you've gained all your life. Trust me as a sovereign Lord over your stuff. And what I'm saying. Well, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The giddiness is gone. The flattery is over. The looking around going, man, I got this, is gone. Here's the thing, the, the word disheartened, I know we can think of it as like, oh, he just went away like, oh, bummer. I don't want to do that. No, it's a better way to translate it. Shocked or appalled. Shocked or appalled. He went away appalled 
by what Jesus had just asked him to do. Even the disciples are in a bit of shock. I mean, you would figure disciples are in a constant state of shock with Jesus. I think towards the end, they're just scared to ask Jesus anything because they're like, well, I think I got this answer, but I'm not sure. He asked what color the sky is, and I think it's blue, but you, you answer, Peter. I know you're always, the, you're always the first one up anyway. Go and answer it. I mean, there's always like, I mean, they're just like, because it says they're amazed, and later they're going to be exceedingly amazed. They're just like, did Jesus really just say that to that guy? I think he did. Okay, I'm just checking. They get, they get shocked by what he says to them afterwards as the man walks away appalled. Jesus looked around. He knew the response. He knew what was going on in people's minds and hearts. He knew what was going on in that group. He says, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how difficult to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. They went from amazed, like, <gasps> to exceedingly astonished. <gasps> Why? Why? Because in that day, and as perverse as it is, it's, it's, it's seeped into our day. If you obeyed all the rules that God gave you, God would bless you with stuff, with wealth, with riches. So what, what, what they were thinking was, and the common idea was, wealth, riches equals God's blessing. Wealth, riches equals God's favor. Because on the converse side of it, when you read through the Gospels and the people that Jesus actually treats best, and not best, but treats um, most compassionately and patiently are the ones, the widows, the sick, the disabled. Those are the ones actually common knowledge was they're cursed by God. So Jesus is saying, no, no, the thing that you think has given you favor with God, the thing that you think proves you have favor with God, the thing that you think proves you are blessed by God is the thing that is hindering you from knowing God. Ooh. Oh, no, he didn't. He did, again, just stirring the pot, Jesus, the way things are. Disciples' ideas of salvation are being rocked by what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is not speaking for a life of, of poverty necessarily. He's not saying all poor people go to heaven. For Jesus, it's always about digging deeper. See, the problem for this young man was not his wealth. It was not his great possessions. It was his heart. Jesus loved him. And showed his love and compassion for him. In the same way he does for us. He called this man out. Showing him the true nature of his sin. Jesus showed this man who believed that because of his wealth and riches. And in his morality. His heart was near to God. How in fact far he truly was. Because his heart was still committed to his wealth and to his self-sufficiency. 
What Jesus was doing was showing this man that his problem was idolatry. Now, remember what Jesus, remember what Jesus said about what to do. He gave some of the commandments, right? Nod your head if you're following along. All right. Some of the commandments. You notice one in particular missing? You shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther would say, when you break that commandment, you break the rest. If you're breaking the others, you're breaking the first. Jesus doesn't mention that one to him. But now he's exposing that that's, that's where his heart is. See, idolatry simply puts when we worship anything other than God. When we find our hope, our reason for existence, our source of our identity, of who we are, anything other than God. And it can be easy to be deceived by our goodness like this man to think we are not guilty of this. I mean, some of you could be sitting there going, Psh, I ain't got no money, low, so this, one don't, this one don't apply to me. Or, I'm glad so-and-so's here. They just bought a new car and they need to be hearing this message those little rich young rulers over there. Here's the truth. Since the fall, and our hearts, by nature, are in rebellion against God, we all are guilty of idolatry, and we are all fighting idolatry as we speak. It's just the truth. I'm guilty, you're guilty. If you go, Los, I'm not guilty of idolatry ever, your idol might be lying. See, this man's love for his wealth was the symptom of the deeper heart issue. Of finding who he was and what he could earn, what he could do. His heart felt safe and secure going up to Jesus. Yet that was the problem that Jesus was revealing in this man's heart. The man was... Jesus was exposing how this man's heart had been leading him astray. Jesus was in fact showing him what Jeremiah had written centuries before when Jeremiah wrote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Jesus, the Lord, was testing this man and exposing this man's heart condition. Man who had relied on his wealth, his self, his morals, his status, his position, was now being called to let go of all of it and trust in the sovereign goodness and love of God. Jesus was simply confronting this man's false God, and this man was appalled. The disciples were amazed and astounded. See, when our idols are confronted, it's not pleasant. It's not. There will be some 
frustration. You might be appalled even, shocked. Jesus loved this man. He loves us too much to think that we can follow after these idols and still follow after him. In fact, particularly with, with money, which really is underlying an idol maybe of safety, security, comfort, convenience, pride. With money, Jesus actually emphasized this a little more. I'm not sure when you guys saw like the money signs, maybe some of your hearts are like, oh, God, you're talking about money again. Here's what Jesus says. He knows this is one of the ones that we cling to. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Sounds familiar, right? What did you say to the young man? Where neither moth nor rust destroy, or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's the thing. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to put everything else in an open hand and surrendered to him. He calls us to follow him with everything else in subjection to him. Trusting everything else to him. Maybe it's not money or wealth. Yeah, some of you guys might be sitting there going, I got no money, dude. Maybe it's something else. The thing is, whatever your heart is that, whatever it is that your heart is chasing after that is not God, will hinder your pursuit. It will be impossible to follow God. In fact, there's a famous biblical character that was called to give up what an idol could be. Give up what could possibly become an idol. The Bible is littered with this. Ever since the fall, there are always constant themes in Scripture. When you read the Bible, you should look for constant themes. One of the themes should be redemption. Old Testament, you should look for Jesus. He's the hero in the whole story. Another one of the themes you hear is the danger of idols the savagery and the wrecking it does to people of God. One of these men was challenged. might have heard of him. His name was Abraham. Abraham was a wealthy man. Lots of land, cattle. God calls him to pick up and leave. Brings his cattle with him. Yet the possessions, yet his wealth was not the thing that Abraham was in danger of idolizing. It was his son. See, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, were old. We're talking like 90-ish old. Now, I don't know if you've done the research. When you're 90 and you've been barren your whole life, the prognosis is not good that you're going to have kids. I don't see a lot of 90-year-olds walking around pregnant. There'd probably be like a Dateline special about them. And so, but, for, but in that day, and really sometimes in this day too much as well, children were an idol because for the husband, the child was his legacy. The child was his heir. The child would be his name throughout generations. For the woman, 
You're not a real woman unless you have a child. That was a thought. You're less than a woman. Sadly, that's sin, and that is sinful thought, thought from straight from Satan, still creeps into the minds today. But God promised them a child at 90, and it was, I mean, Abraham was there a while. <laughs> really? But God's faithful to his word, keeps his promises. They have Isaac. Isaac's the only child. Isaac is the heir, the legacy for Abraham. Isaac is the child that Sarah and Abraham have been praying for their whole life, sent for decades. They've been praying for this child. So you know he grew up, he's probably spoiled. He probably got anything he wanted for a while. He's a kid that any parent had hoped for. But here's what happens in the next chapter after the birth of Isaac. Next chapter in Genesis. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. So God even like, kind of reminds him, your son, your only son, who you really love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. One and only son, the one you've been praying for for decades. The one that you felt in the back of your mind at times, this would complete us. You go sacrifice him. <gasps> Do, and, I mean, I'm sure their hearts right now, they're like the rich young man. I mean, some of here are appalled that God would ask such a thing. Here's how Abraham responds. He trusts the Lord. He trusts his sovereignty. He has surrendered all things to the Lord. He says, and he takes Isaac up the mountain to offer him. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the order. And bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He knew like Abraham was probably like waiting for anything. Like, I'm here, here, what, what? Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham was willing to do what, the, what this rich young man was not. He was willing to surrender his most prized thing to God. He trusted God's wisdom, strength, and also put God before all things. We don't know what the response would have been if the rich young man would have gone, all right, who wants to go help me do a garage sale? We're going to go do it. Jesus said, no. Let's see if he would. Didn't get the chance. His heart was already hard and he didn't trust God. He just wanted he just wanted the goods from God. He just wanted the eternal life, but he didn't actually want God. So he walked away shocked and appalled. Abraham trusted, felt the love of God, knew he was God's, knew that God was wise, good, and sovereign. Didn't understand it. I'm guessing he didn't understand it. 
trembled, probably as he went up the mountain, saying, God, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. I don't, I don't get this, I trust you. Surrendered it all. Because here's the thing. The Bible shows over and over and over again, following God while your heart is captured by something else, money, your kids, your spouse, your status, possessions, your job, is not hard. It is impossible. And here's the thing, because, and this is where we got to remind ourselves that Jesus loved this man when he challenged him. Here's why it's impossible in some ways. Because first, those things will capture our hearts and our affections. And second, those things will leave us wanting. You make your kids God. You make your children your everything. You will crush them under the weight of trying to be God for you. You make your bank account, your possessions, your house, your God, your everything, your identity, it is all fleeting and will waste away to nothing. Five years of this past economy should have showed us that. You cannot have your heart committed to something else and committed to following Jesus at the same time. In this, Jesus takes the disciples and takes us to the ledge of our despair, to the ledge of hopelessness. We should be feeling that right now. Jesus even amped it up a little bit with an illustration. Now, over the centuries, people have tried to water down this illustration of a camel through an eye of a needle. Some said, there's a cave little tunnel called the eye of the needle. And what had to happen is the camel had to get down, take off all the stuff of the camel, and had to wiggle through, hold his breath, the camel holding his breath, and get through. You should really push hard. What Jesus is saying, it's really, 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 really hard to get in. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying, the biggest animal you know of, <clears throat> And that was a camel in those days, in the Middle East. They didn't have elephants. It was a camel. The smallest opening you can think of. We have microscopes. They didn't know any quarks or stuff that people smarter than I am know of. I have a needle, the smallest opening they can think of. Jesus took the largest animal, the smallest opening, said someone that's caught up in their wealth, their riches, of who they are, what they have, whatever their idol is. It's easier to get this camel through this eye of the needle than for them to get into heaven. When you go to the zoo this summer, take a little needle with you. Go to the camel. Ask your kids how you can get them through. they will be like, well, it's going to get messy. We know that Jesus isn't trying to like say, well, it's just really hard. You know, it's an eye of the needle. It's like a cave and you can pull. No, because the disciples' reaction, they're astonished. They're, in fact, they speak up and say, who can be saved?
Who's, where's the hope? If this guy that we thought was blessed by God was moral, can't be saved, where's the hope for us? Their hearts are being exposed. This goes beyond just how can I not go to hell? Which might be what this young man was just wanting. He didn't necessarily want Jesus. He didn't want to trust in God's goodness, love with all his possessions, with all his things, with all his status, with all his identity. He just wanted a gold star to get into heaven. He didn't want change. He didn't want to be transformed. Here's the thing. When you have met Jesus, you are changed. If I came in here this morning and I said, man, last night I saw GSP, George St. Pierre, if you don't know, mixed martial artist at the club. I went up and fought him. Oh, no, he beat me up. I mean, he beat me up. I was tapping and he was still hitting me. And I came in like looking like this. No, you didn't. You don't even have a scratch on you. Some of us think, we say, oh, I've met Jesus. I follow Jesus. And we don't have anything that looks different. The disciples, and I'm hoping us, have a right desperate response of almost hopelessness. And what's the... What's the hope, Jesus? Jesus looked at them, said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In other words, God would have to do something first that we, on our own, are helpless to do. It's not about how we obey, but how we are given a new heart centered on Jesus. And that is where the gospel, the hope, comes in. Because here's the ironic thing about this story with this rich young man. There were two rich young men in the story. Did you guys know that? Look down there. Do you see the two rich young men? One might not be as obvious. One left heaven. One left perfect relationship with, within the Godhead of the Trinity. One left all things, dove into the mess of humanity for the sake of the poor in spirit. For the sake of the poor, helpless, wretches that cannot do anything on their own. He became poor to the point of dying a criminal's death on a cross so that we may be given eternal life, so that we may be partakers of his inheritance. There's two rich young men in the story. Jesus was asking this man to do what he had done and is, was doing. We must understand 
apart from God coming down in obedience, doing what we can't and won't because we're sinners. Not counting equality with God as a thing to be grasped, Philippians says. We are atoned for in our sins by the cross. We are given his righteousness. He who knew no righteousness, righteous, he who knew no sin, who became sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness in him. We are given his righteousness. We are called to follow him. See, until we see that rich young man, until we see Jesus' work on the cross for us, trust in it, we will never understand what it means to actually follow him. Because we will continually say, what must I do? What must I do? What Jesus is saying here is, it's not about what you do, it's what God's going to do, what I'm going to do. And when you trust in that, he then calls us to follow him and here's where it is. It's a life of repentance. Martin Luther called it a life of repentance. So when I was, I grew up nominally Catholic. I didn't understand any of the Christian terminology, really biblical terminology at that. So when they used to say repent, I had no idea what that meant. Here's what repentance is. And, here's, and Martin Luther says it's a life that we're constantly in. We're constantly repenting. And this is, this is, the, this is the tricky part. This is where we kind of go, I, I, I really I trust in that. I want that. I want to be with Jesus. He took my sin on the cross. And then we kind of forget about the actual, like, you know, turning towards Jesus and walking away from everything else part. That's what repentance is. So you got Jesus over here calling us to follow him, trust everything we have under his uh, sovereign lordship, trust his wisdom. We got everything else that was, we idolized, not, not necessarily bad things. Good things become bad things when they become God things. So they're not necessarily bad things. Family, bank account, job, spouse, relationship, whatever. Those aren't bad things. But when we start finding our identity, our hope in those things, and we start chasing after them, trying to find our satisfaction in everything, that's what Jesus said. He said that in Matthew. Two microphones. That microphone, that microphone. I can't look at them both. I can't face both of them at the same time. Facing one, or I'm facing the other. I can't look at them at the same time. I don't care how fast you are, you can't. That's what repentance is. Say, I'm not going to find my satisfaction in these things, my ultimate satisfaction. I'm not going to find my hope, my identity, and who I am in these. I'm going to find my hope, my identity, my ultimate satisfaction in him. But it's a life of repentance. So your Christian life looks like this. You started here, hoping in all this stuff. You see what a wretch it is. You hear Christ's call. He, gives, he saves you. And you start to go like this. And it's kind of funny because I, I feel like when you're an early Christian, it's like. But then all of a sudden, you hear the whisperings. You start to turn back. And that's where a constant life of repentance comes. This is, what, this is what the Christian life looks like. That's what the Christian life looks like. It's not a done. Bam. No. It's a constant pooling between two worlds. 
It's a constant, no, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. By God's grace, he says, you know what? Because I did this, I got you. And you're going to be fighting the whole way, but I got you. So it wouldn't have been this rich young ruler going, okay, there's all my money, I'm done, and I don't need money anymore. No, you see that in the disciples. They're constantly going, that's the Christian life. That's what we're called to. That's what following Jesus looks like. But you've got to be willing to go, I'm giving all that under him. Giving all that under him. I'm trusting him with it. I'm trusting him with it. Some of us will go, oh yeah, I'm going to trust. Well, da 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 He just doesn't need to look behind the curtain. That's me. He doesn't need to look under the, behind the curtain. We'll just take it, keep that one quiet. See, Jesus says, I want it all. I want it all. Peter, then, Jesus says, God, God will, can do the impossible. Well, Peter does Peter, a Peter thing next. He speaks up. He says, look at, see, we have left everything and followed you. Now, usually Jesus will like rebuke Peter at this point. And be like, yeah, Peter, be quiet, go over there. Here's some crayons, go play. But he doesn't this time. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children lands for my sake or for the gospel will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time of houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with, with persecutions and age to come eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them. Jesus says, you have left. The disciples did leave everything. I mean, at one point, they're fishing with their dad, doing their work. They leave their nets, and they leave their dad out on the boat. And Jesus says, follow me. Like, All right. He can man for dad. Like, hey, I can't get back. I mean, they left everything to follow Jesus. So Jesus doesn't rebuke them. What he says is, what you have now, it's hundredfold of what you had before. You're going to have persecutions. And you're going to leave, but you, and you, what you're going to have internal life is going to be far exceeding. So what's he mean, hundredfold now? Christian, this is for us too. What's it mean that we have a hundredfold? Brothers, sisters, mothers, babies, lands, possessions, all this. Look around. Church, look around. No, really, look around. Look at the people sitting next to you. Look at the people in your community group. Wave to people across the way. You're facing each other over here. You can see each other. Say, hi. Love Jesus. Yeah, me too. I really hope close and soon. Yeah, me too. When you look around, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, you have a family. You have a big family that opens up homes for you, that makes sacrifices when there's others in need. You have it in a hundredfold. In persecutions, hey, all these disciples are going to suffer. They're all going to die for Jesus. Persecutions come with it. So if comfort and convenience are here, we're going to fill that pool. And so how do, I, how do we end this? I have a couple questions for you as we end. Do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see him as your treasure? Or do you see salvation still as 
get into heaven. Does the thought of you get Jesus, you have Jesus, he is sustaining, he is your life, he is your hope, he's your status, he's your identity. Does that excite you? Or, or, or as John Piper put it, can you imagine he- heaven with all the you know mansions and streets of gold and no death and no sickness and no tears without Jesus and still be satisfied? Now you could tell you could tell me you could tell your community. No, of course not. Ask God to check your heart. Ask God to pierce your heart. Ask God to appall your heart with that. And then secondly, what in your life is Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit as we speak asking you to surrender and trust him with, to put in subjection to his lordship? In other words, what do you struggle idolizing? What do you struggle idolizing? There's three, three ways you've handled this sermon. One is you're feeling the Holy Spirit convict you and now you're trying to quench it. So you're going to try to quench it with like a Diet Coke and a pizza later and just forget about this. Two is you haven't been listening to me at all and you're playing Angry Birds on your iPad and pretending to take notes. Or three, Holy Spirit's in there, in, that, in your heart, out of love, out of love, because remember, when, when, when the Bible speaks of you being allowed to be comfortable in your idols, that's actually called God's judgment. So out of love and care and grace, Holy Spirit's in there with a sledgehammer right now. Going behind the curtain going, what about this? What about this? What about this? What is it? And do you trust that God loves you enough to expose that? And do you trust that God is strong enough wise enough, good enough, and is for you by the cross through his grace for you to put that under his lordship, under his rule and surrender it to him. If we're going to sing all I have is Christ, are you willing to put that under and say, all I have is you. All these other things are good things. I'm stewards of them all, but they are all yours, as am I.